Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and in the studio with me for this episode is my co-commenter, Cameron Brooks. It's hard to write a great novel these days, and those who manage find that the public isn't exactly waiting with bated breath. In his recent book, The Novel, Who Needs It?, critic Joseph Epstein catalogs a list of what he terms enemies of the novel. In this episode, I'm going to try to convince Cameron and you, our listeners, that these enemies threaten more than just the novel. I think they're a menace to human faithfulness and flourishing in general. The enemies of the novel are your enemies, too. At least that's the case that I'm going to try to make in this episode. Cameron, I have been reading Joseph Epstein's book, The Novel, Who Needs It? And it's been really interesting. I heard him described by one person who recommended him as as controversial. And because I've liked the book so much, it makes me wonder about myself Uh, I read a very dismissive uh, LA Times review of the book that was that typical uh, nothing to see here kind of review that to me always suggests you haven't really taken the, the criticism seriously if you think it's so easy to swat away. I really think this book is fascinating, but I'm not hyping it here because of its value as literary criticism, although I think, you know, it's pretty fascinating on that level. But because towards the middle of the book in chapter 13, Epstein starts talking about enemies of the novel, basically forces in culture, uh, changes in the world that either like undermine the quality of the novels that are being written or make good novels increasingly irrelevant in the modern world. And as I read his list, which is one of these uh, everything but the kitchen sink kind of lists of of the enemies of the novel, I realized these same things are also forces undermining faithfulness and flourishing more generally. Mm. And so I thought it might be interesting to talk about the enemies of the novel and then think about how they're actually enemies to more than just good novels. Does that make sense? Yeah, let's hear them. Okay, so like I say, this is from chapter 13 of the novel Who Needs It? And let me just give you the list up front before elaborating. There's six things that he's going to point to and say these are the enemies of the novel. And I've just made this more outline like he, he... you know, is an essayist. And so it's a little more elegantly presented, but basically his number one is the internet. His number two is political correctness. His number three, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, Cameron is academic life, specifically MFA programs, uh, which I graduated from one and you're currently enrolled in one. Yep. Uh, number four, the state of contemporary publishing Number five, and this will sound strange, it's graphic novels, but he has a point here and he devotes a little bit of time to it. It's kind of interesting. And then number six is the triumph of the therapeutic. Mm. 
in our culture. So those six things, and I think along the way, like if you read this chapter, you'll see like each one of these has several points. They're like, you know, rockets that have a warhead that has multiple sort of bombs inside of it. But this gives you kind of a sense for the cultural forces that he's pointing to. And and basically, Epstein is a literary critic who loves uh, novels, definitely loves like the classic novels, but he has a theory of what makes a good novel, uh, what makes good art. And he lays this out at several points in the book. And I'll just give you the, the way he puts it here in chapter 13. He says, great literature is about the role of destiny and moral conflict. So he will look at all sorts of classic novels and, and demonstrate how the authors of these books, they create great art because they're wrestling with these questions related to destiny and purpose and, and, and also morality. You know, what, what is good? What is evil? Uh, the struggle that characters in novels have to, to be uh, good and not evil or to even know what is good, not as they wrestle with those conflicts. That's where great art emerges, he says. And so basically the argument is these various forces are undermining that. They're undermining the production of great art focused on these ideas or driven by them, but they're also undermining our appreciation of those things so that even when someone writes something great, there's just nobody showing up to experience it because they're all influenced by these other things. So he thinks that people are still creating great works of art, great novels these days, but if they are, they're just not being found. Okay. That's a good question. I, I think he believes in theory that that could be happening. Okay. Uh, he does say that his tendency is to read less and less contemporary stuff, uh, but he does read reviews of new books in the Times Literary Supplement. And that was actually one of the the things that the LA Times reviewer uh, snarked about, that he's not even reading the books and he's he's criticizing them. But honestly, I related deeply to it as, as someone who loves the Times Literary Supplement and knows a lot of books only through what the TLS has written about them. I, I totally get why you would do that. But, but yeah, so he's allowing the possibility it could be done, but I think suggesting it's a lot harder. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot fewer people interested in doing that. But then also if, if you did manage to do it, the reception side of things, the landscape's a lot different yeah. than it used to be. And, and yeah, so it's, it's a challenge both ways. Mm-hmm. Personally, I can relate to that. You know, I I can relate to it as someone who aspires to write great novels uh, and also as someone who wants to read them. But but like Epstein finds myself less and less interested in contemporary Mm -hmm. writing and reading a lot more older stuff. Um, Yeah. So so these are things that I'm really intrigued by. And like I say, I'm, I'm intrigued by the way that there are also larger problems for a life of faithfulness and, and certainly a, a life of uh, higher things, let's say, like a focus on on higher things that are worthy of contemplation. Yeah. Well, I could certainly see how the internet would be an enemy to both art and the life of faith. We've oh, had yeah. conversations yeah. about how the internet 
Well, That's, in our last episode, right? Yeah, we were talking about right. social media and the yeah, corrosive effects. Yeah, I'm just giving effects. it up altogether. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so you are actually <laughs> battling the enemies. But when Epstein talks about the internet, um, he actually kind of this, he springboards into this with, uh, I think it's Will Self. He's, he's writing about Will Self and how Will Self kind of puts his finger on the internet is the reason why the novel is dying um, after doing a little catalog of all of the various you know, death of the novel announcements that have happened over the years. But, uh, but the, the point for Epstein on the internet is not all of the different things we could point to that, that are troubling. He focuses on, uh, the internet's capacity to change our reading habits, right? Cause he's really focused on the literary question and sees in himself that, that although he reads on the internet, uh, you know, like looking things up, reading for information, uh, gaining temporary knowledge about things is not literary reading, right? It's not the same thing. It's He's going to the internet for something. He's using basic literary skills, but he says that reading on the internet is at base unliterary, <laughs> which I found it's fascinating, you know, because I've try to comfort myself that at least, you know, if people are online, like they have to read, you know, but it's the kind of reading that we do online that is the problem because it is not the kind of reading that we do with novels or, or with any immersive text, right? Yeah. It's not how we read the Bible. It's right. not how we read novels either. Um, yeah, so that's that's his main point. He does have kind of a sub point though, and this is something we've talked about. I think that um, the internet and specifically social media tends to encourage us to seek experiences that validate our own experiences. So, where for for Epstein, one of the values of the novel is the way that you experience other lives, and in a sense, try on those lives and have to wrestle with the moral questions that they encounter. Morally speaking, the internet conditions us to just find our tribe. And so it, it reinforces our confidence in what we believe, but it doesn't necessarily mature us mm-hmm. in the same way that literary reading, he says, would. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that gets back to some of the stuff we were talking about last week, again, about mm-hmm. algorithms and how social media platforms are largely set up to give you what they think you want. Right. Right. (laughs) More of that. Like, Mm -hmm. Oh, you like images of golden retrievers. We'll give you lots more of those. Or you like videos of John Piper. We'll give you more of those, but it's not going to challenge you necessarily with, with outside perspectives. Or if it does, it does it in a, in a weird way, you know, like I'm always being suggested things that are like, uh, like viewpoints I don't agree with, but it's, it's, you know, mocking them or, you know, someone sort of taking cheap shots at them or, or something like that. So it kind of encourages me to have those contemptuous attitudes towards other people. And it's, it's, uh, it's also for Epstein interesting because he sees the way that the internet and, and it's, it's way of being, it's way of operating contributes to his second enemy, which is political correctness that social media in particular has given an enforcement mechanism to political correctness and, and made it so that um, the, the kind of open conversation 
an inquiry that was the dream of the internet originally is in some ways shut down. He says there's, there's large segments of the culture that are no longer open to honest discussion. And so again, because he's focused on novels, he looks at the experience of, of novelists like um, Zadie Smith and uh, Lionel Shriver and a few others who are concerned about the narrowing that's taken place under the auspices of like fears of quote unquote appropriation that even though historically being an artist has been all about experiencing other positions, imagining other people, literally uh, now politically, that's a very fraught area. And uh, there are, you know, novels who talk about, or novelists who talk about like a state of fear in the industry. Like you could be canceled or your work could be um, shunned if you transgress these lines that are are essentially that, that sort of social media weaponized version of political correctness. He focuses on something I think you'll find interesting, which is, uh, a certain segment of novels that have emerged sort of good novels, uh, quote unquote, uh, politically correct novels that, uh, one reviewer termed sanctimony literature (laughs) and in sanctimony literature, uh, the way he describes it, there's a clear, but also crude morality that's operating. It's very simplistic. There are good people and there are bad people in the stories and the way that you tell the difference between them is their politics. Mm. Right. The good people have good politics. The bad people have bad politics, just like on your Twitter feed or, you know, what have you. Uh, the, the essay that he draws on a lot from is by Becca Rothfield. And she has this description, which again, she's talking about a genre of books, but it could just as easily be a description of sort of internet morality in general. So she writes, sanctimony literature errs, not because it ventures into moral territory, but because it displays no genuine curiosity about what it really means to be good, and is blind to the distinction between morality and moralism, and exhibits no doubt about its own probity. <laughs> so, I mean, you hear that, you you know my ears are perking up, because the, that... Morality versus moralism distinction is something we're always talking about at Grace. You know, that there's such a tendency in religion for people to adopt moralism as a means of justification. You know, I I will demonstrate that I'm a good person by keeping the rules. And that is a religious small r impulse that you see very commonly in very irreligious people in our culture now. Like we are just very moralistic. It's shocking how every aspect of life is colonized by this crude, crude moral system. But as she says, it, it's very uncurious about what actually constitutes the good. Uh, all of those questions are already settled. It's just about enforcing that dualism. Yeah. It's interesting, like you said at the start, to think about good art being characterized by moral conflict, mm-hmm. not moralism, but moral right. conflict. And and I think the Christian life in large part 
is characterized by a kind of moral struggle, sanctification, not, I don't know if it's always, uh, a, I mean, maybe it is a conflict. But well, yes, it is. And, and the thing about it is it's, it's not an external conflict. Yeah. And I think that the, the mm-hmm. simplistic melodrama just pits the good people against the bad people. That's not the conflict. Yeah that makes great art or that makes human flourishing, right? The conflict that, that really does those things is internal, yeah. right? It's the struggle within myself to know the good and to do the good. Uh, if, if I'm fully confident that I always think and do good and it's everybody else who's the problem, yeah, that's not a catalyst for, for great <laughs> art or for, for great life, right. you know. It's uh, Epstein quotes uh i guess lionel trilling had this distinction between what he called moral realism and moral righteousness mm-hmm. and and i know like as a pastor you're going to expect me to say well moral righteousness that's the good one moral realism is not but it's just the other way around right that the moral righteousness is is a term that's really talking about moralism it's that self-assurance that that you're always right about things and moral realism is that recognition of the flaw in every human being, that there's this internal conflict. Uh, Moriak talked about how the Christian novelist recognizes that every character is in this kind of internal struggle between salvation and damnation. You know, the stakes are that high. And having that kind of an understanding makes, you know, sanctimony literature or just sanctimonious living very difficult. Now here's the hard one. Uh, political oh. correctness we can cheer, but but number three is academic life and specifically MFA programs. And uh, so so we should stipulate. Um, you know, I went to the MFA program in fiction at University of Houston, and you're currently working through the MFA program in poetry at Seattle Pacific. Uh, there's a big difference in terms of orientation. Um, you know, my program was, I don't want to say like, like it wasn't that it was hostile towards religion. Uh, there were, you know, Christians in, in the program and, and even teaching in the program. And, um, you know, like a lot of people going into uncertain territory, most of the obstacles I faced were of my own making, <laughs> you know. And so at the same time, though, it wasn't really a place where, you know, exploring all of that deeper stuff, at least for me, that it wasn't like that. And so I, I think your experience has been a little bit different. You've had opportunities to, to mine some of that, that deeper ore. And so, yeah, 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 I think so. And some people may know my program's going through its own stuff right sure, now sure. related to political correctness, of course, but, but no, I, and on the whole, I would say I've had a, a good experience and felt like there's been an openness to moral conflict and destiny and yeah. all these things. And in part, that's because the the program is rooted in a, a profound Christian vision of what art can be. Mm-hmm. But I, if I had to guess, I could, I could, I could probably think of some reasons why, he would consider these things enemies to the novel though. And it's because there's a kind of, I, maybe it's related to political correctness where like the Academy is where the political correctness gets established maybe, mm-hmm. or borne out in experience. 
and and then these MFA programs are where those things get taught. By- yeah, yeah. I think I think that's part of his critique, mm-hmm. and part of it is, you know, he feels like these programs emphasize like a derivativeness, and because they're couched in the academy, um, a certain inwardness, mm-hmm. like a, a failure to engage with the larger world, that makes the product very uh hothouse yeah you know that that um mfa programs are not turning out you know great artists who are engaging with the world they're they're turning out academics who also do a sort of precious uh very politically informed stylistic kind of writing uh would probably be his critique and and of course I'm reading it and I, I want to bristle, but I also recognize like there's, there's a lot of validity to that critique. There's, um, you know, just the, the, there's a book, this is an older book, but, uh, techniques and technicians or something like that it was a critique of sort of the MFA mm-hmm. pattern for writing. And yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that, but, but it's striking to me though, because, even in a bigger sense, I think we can see how like the life of the Academy and, and the, the narrow scope and the, the assurances of university life have gone from being very sort of remote and elite to being much more mainstream now. And so again, like the, the same, not stifling effect, but the same, um, tendency that, that let's say the MFA programs have to corral you into a certain direction. I think academia does that in general, if, if you're not careful and you can see the effects of that in the larger world, like, like these are the accepted ranges of opinion. Uh, this is legitimate inquiry. Everything outside of this is not. And so mm-hmm. it's um yeah. He doesn't devote a lot of time to that, but yeah. he gives a few examples of the kind of thing he sees as representative and, and is basically like, is this, is this what you want to read? You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then he, he segues into the state of contemporary publishing and, and, and really talks about two things. I think first off, just that it's very commercial, right? That what gets published now, the, the calculation for traditional publishing kind of has to be um, a commercial one. Like if you're putting a lot of money into something, you want to, you want to believe that it's going to make a return. And so if I have to choose between, um, you know, your great novel of, of moral conflict and destiny, or a celebrity has written a book about their dog, it might need to be the celebrity dog book that goes to the top of the list. And which is fine though, because you always have the option of self publishing. And that's another aspect of what he points to that, that that's a freedom that anyone can be in print, but, but it's one of those ironic freedoms like uh, discovery in a court case, right? They have to turn over the documents, but when they turn over 10 million documents, you can't ever find the thing that, that you're looking for. And it's the same way. Like if everybody has the power to publish, then no one person is easy to find or, or finds it easy to distinguish himself. Mm-hmm. 
in the marketplace. And so again, the, the, the more of a marketplace literature becomes, the more it functions in that way and not in the way that would lead to great novels or indeed great living, you know, does he have any like third way between those two paths? Because I, it stumps me a little bit. I, I feel the pain of both of those options, but I don't know what the alternative is. Right. No, I mean, I, I, I would say, no, he does not. That the, the cool thing about being the critic is that <laughs> you can point criticize. out the problem yeah. and you don't necessarily have to fix the problem. Um, and it's, I mean, I would say, you know, obviously it's as simple as caring about the right things and then doing the work. And, and if the problem is the commercialism, then the answer is to get off the wheel of the commercial, right? That you have to stop caring about, um, making success, the guiding principle. He actually quotes an editor who represents for him like the old view that, that would be more noble, which is a guy saying, you know, I don't think about if a book will be successful, I think about, do I love it? And if I love it, I assume it won't sell, but I publish it anyway, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and I, that's, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, um, I think he would hold that up as an ideal, but that gets us to, uh, the graphic novels. And here I think immediately like, well, surely there's no spiritual or larger application, but I think there is because his point with graphic novels is, is really not the graphic novel itself because he grew up reading sort of comic book versions of the classics and, and has an appreciation for those things. It's specifically the way that we've elevated that to the level of art, like not a comic book, but a graphic novel. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that that has a sort of um, it's like filling the void that was left behind so that we can tell ourselves that this, you know, middle brow thing is really a high brow thing or something like that. It's very similar to Martin Scorsese's comments a few years ago about Marvel movies, superhero movies that um, they're not real cinema and that they are changing the appetite of the viewer. And now you can see a lot of people writing about the fatigue that viewers have with that genre and their desire to kind of have something else. And so that critique starts making a lot more sense. So, so here, you know, it, it comes off as elitist, you know, like why does he not like graphic novels? But, but he's trying to put his finger on the, the way that our culture in particular, 21st century culture has a tendency to like abandon the, the higher goods and to replace them with something that in the past would have been recognized as less mature. Right. And, and to me, it's, it's like the thing where you, you see, you know, grown men with, you know, collections of toys as their treasured possessions and that arrested development thing that, that it seems so common now that maturity is, is lacking it's that, that, that he's really putting his finger on. So in that sense, I feel like, um, it's, it's about the, the absence of maturity, yeah. you know, it, it really is about, uh, you can write a great novel, but if there's no one with the ability to appreciate it, uh, 
because they've all satisfied themselves with, with lower fare. Um, and I realized, like, as I'm saying this, you can't make these points without sounding, you know, horribly elitist, but, (laughs) but, um, you know, think of it like, like, uh, like a culinary thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you can eat chicken McNuggets, you can eat, you know, fine dining. And most of us, even an ignoramus like me, culinarily speaking, would acknowledge that fast food is not on the same level as fine dining. Yeah. Um, even if there's a place for it, you can't equate the two, right? But that's the thing we have a very hard time acknowledging in our culture about art. Right? It's very hard for people to acknowledge that, that there could be a place for all this stuff, but some of it really is more worthy mm-hmm. of contemplation than, than others. Yeah. Right. And, and that's a real challenge. I remember one of my English classes in college, a professor was trying to make the case that watching TV was on the same level of, of reading a novel or something like this. Like why we Hmm. shouldn't distinguish between the different forms of media. If you want to do this this way, that's fine. And and I think I, I bristled against that idea for, for similar reasons. At first I thought, well, actually, yeah, that's kind of liberating. That would be nice. Like if we, you know, oh, it's, mm-hmm. but, but if you think about it in terms of taste and the cultivation of your, your aptitudes or your, your appetites, then there's something to be, I mean, of course there's a space for watching a show or watching a movie but that's not to say it's all the same and the media is the only thing that matters. Like there are some virtues demanded by a difficult novel or a, a high piece of literature or any high work of art that aren't there on a blog post or a YouTube video. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's, there's actually this, I think kind of hilarious digression in Epstein about an attempt to turn Proust's in search of things past into a graphic novel, like a Swan's way graphic novel. And he's just incredulous, but then he's got a, an author who's justifying it. And the metaphor that he uses is interesting. Uh, He compares it to a piano reduction to an orchestral score. So the orchestral score is the great novel and the graphic novel version is the piano reduction. So you can play it on the piano. It's the same piece. It's just a lot more simplified. And that's the same metaphor C.S. Lewis uses in an essay of his called Transposition uh, to describe kind of among other things, like the difference between, let's say, like the mind of God and the knowledge we have in mm-hmm. Revelation, you know, that it's true knowledge but it's transposed to be, to play on our pianos, <laughs> not God's orchestra yeah. kind of a thing. And so I, I thought that was interesting. You know, he is, he is uh, kind of trying to work through, you know, not, not an utter dismissal, but uh, how do these things stand in relation to one another? And, and for me, that's the, the key. Like I, I have no problem with the idea of watching television, right. you know, and you don't have to only read novels but it does make me uncomfortable that need to justify, right? Cause it comes out of a place of insecurity. Like we're, we're not, 
spending our time on the good stuff. And so we want to justify why we're not by saying, well, everything is, is the same. This is just as good as that or something like that. And I think that, that impulse is the problem really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but that brings us to the last thing. So, th- so his last critique, as I said, is, is the rise of the therapeutic. And he ends on this and it kind of ends the essay or the chapter on this as well, but it, carries a lot of weight, I think, because the the way that books are written now, what's valued, the even the the moral simplicity we talked about earlier, all does seem to come together on this different way of processing reality through the lens of therapy. Um, and when he talks about the rise of the therapeutic, he's not saying, you know, it's bad to see a counselor. He's specifically thinking of the kind of psychobabble, like the way that we all uh, substitute, you know, half understood psychological terminology as if we were all psychiatrists uh, trained in the field, when the reality is we're just using the language very crudely and, and metaphorically and, and all that. But But there's a different orientation, right, that if great literature is about destiny and moral conflict, he says that therapeutic culture is about individual happiness and that changes everything, right? That, that the, the quest for happiness, the focus on happiness uncomplicated by the moral conflict because the, the moral stuff is settled, um, hollows out the heart of the work because for, for the therapeutic culture, the enemy that you have to overcome is repression. And the mode of expression is confession. So you can imagine like in literature of our period, it's, it's become very confessional. Mm -hmm. It's very focused on the self, the actualization of the self and uh, the happiness of individuals seen in very, you know, crude, simplistic terms, but it does lower the stakes in a lot of ways. It's, uh, Epstein says the goal of self-esteem has replaced the longing for strong character. Mm. So the idea of moral formation through struggle and wrestling has been replaced I guess by by a more therapeutic vision of the human journey where we're just needing to sort of deal with our issues and find some happiness <laughs> not not uh, encounter the the big capital T truths yeah I sense that a lot in the contemporary poetry that I read these mm-hmm. days um confessional poetry was a a big deal last century, but it's, it's definitely come back in this therapeutic form, I think, in the last 23 years or so as well, Yeah, where the focus is on, it's on, on the self, but not on this, the moral conflict of the self, like we were talking about earlier, but on this kind of affirmation or seeking, seeking affirmation from others even. Yeah. And yeah, it's a vindication of the self. It's, uh, yeah, I, I think even, even the way that writing is often centered now as a form of therapy oh, yeah. that, um, you know, in poetry, 
you see that a lot where a lot of people get into poetry and poetry slams and all that stuff for self-expression, mm-hmm. right? And you talk about doing art as a form of self-expression, self-actualization. People who are in legitimate therapy situations are sometimes prescribed writing, yeah. you know, <laughs> journaling or write some poetry or whatever as part of your therapeutic regimen. And I think that's had a huge influence on the way all doing of art is conceived. And that, that might be great for therapy, but I think Epstein's point is probably like, it's not great for great art. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's worlds apart. Mm-hmm. It's worlds apart. But I, I think as well, again, this is, this is the, the pivot that I'm suggesting and uh, I won't do it too forcefully, but, but I think each of these things has a larger application. You know, I think each, each of these things as we've kind of done along the way can be broadened out and this is no difference. I think there's a way of taking the reality of the human heart and the struggle against sin and the, the real uh, moral challenge that, that Christian redemption is addressed towards and recasting all of it in the language and the ideas of, of the therapeutic culture and essentially making the gospel of grace and salvation a gospel of self-realization and happiness. And that is, I think it's, it's really common. You know, I, I hear a lot of people who are purporting to preach the gospel or purporting to be talking Christian theology, but it sounds like this therapeutic mindset is really what's the control on that, you know? And so I think our happiness as, you know, therapy subjects is a different question than our uh, righteousness and our flourishing as human beings. Um, The therapeutic aspect is a component, but there's a larger reality that it needs to, to fit into in order to function rightly. So again, briefly, like each one of these things, I think, has an impact on the larger spiritual life. I think as we've talked about, even in our last episode, uh, the influence of the internet on the way we think has a spiritual as well as an intellectual impact. You know, our attention spans, but also our, our ways of relating to one another, our ways of relating to the truth are affected. Uh, we don't challenge ourselves. We are not as conscious of our own need to be challenged, right? We tend to be doctrinaire and just assume that like our tribe has all the answers. And, and the main thing is just to memorize the answers and, and to argue with people who don't already know them. Um, that's not a, a full orbed and growing faith. Uh, the, the political constraint that he writes about is essentially the moralism that we're constantly talking about. That's, it's a, a fundamentally religious way of approaching life. But, but even though I'm a pastor, I'm saying that's not good. Mm-hmm. Like we, we don't want to 
approach things through a moralistic paradigm because what that's all about is, is essentially defining ourselves as the good people and everybody else is the bad people when what we need to be awakened to is the internal conflict within us. Um, academic life, I think you can see the effects of that in the church. I think there's a, a lot of really smart people of faith who only feel able to take on board as much of the Bible as is academically respectable. You know, we've talked a little bit before about things like that, but there's a, a sense in which, you know, you, you can only go so far down that, that path of the Christian tradition uh, because, you know, your academic parameters only allow for so much commercialism like we've talked about commercialism in the church a lot i think the if it's hurt publishing it's hurt religion and spirituality much more and is uh is not helped by the fact that we can all basically self-publish our spiritual thoughts uh the graphic novel thing i i you know christian graphic novels i i don't have any arguments there but but I do think if you look at evangelical culture, certainly it's all about dumbing it down. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's about creating a commercial product that the Christian can consume. It's not about that higher contemplation. It's not about those things worthy of real attention. Mm-hmm. And so you can see that as well. So again, I, I, Epstein doesn't necessarily give solutions like he gives critiques. And the implication I think is just that the solution is to renew your commitment to the opposite of those things. And so I guess that's what I'm going to say as well, that, that for us, uh, we want to take all these, these threats seriously by loving the things they threaten all the more. And in reinvesting ourselves in those things, you know, so if it means being, you know, offline more than we are online, if it means, you know, forcing our politics to be subordinate to our relationships and our faith, if it means, you know, intentionally seeking out the non-commercial, the, the, the stuff that doesn't sell, that is, is deeply good, then that's, what we need to do. Yeah. It's really beautifully put. I'm just thinking in a, in a large way too, the Christian life can be summarized eschatologically in terms of destiny and moral conflict. We we're kind of talking about that before, but when we talk about the already and the, the not yet, the, the redemption that we have in Christ and the redemption that's coming, thinking about that in terms of destiny, where we're headed and the moral conflict, what we have to go through to get there is kind of a helpful, a helpful set of terms, honestly. So I'm going to hang on to that for a while. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, there's so many of these things as you study literature that you start realizing that the way smart people talk about what makes literature work and what makes it good is so theological and is so relevant to everything that we discuss when we're, we're doing theology, it, it's, uh, you know, it gives you goosebumps sometimes to, to think, ah, oh, it's all connected.
Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsuefalls.org.